Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Orthodox School Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Baumgartner. And for this episode, I got to chat with my good friend, Raleigh Sims. Uh, Raleigh actually works for the federal government um, as uh, in his professional life, but um, his passion when he's not um, doing his professional job is to work with organizations that um, are doing anti-sex trafficking work uh, and anti-pornography uh, work or just uh, raising awareness about some of the public health issues and concerns related to uh, porn and uh, pornography. He actually wrote his master's thesis um, on some of the, the policy issues surrounding porn. And um, obviously, porn is a huge industry and a huge issue um, uh, of discipleship in the in the church. And and um, and public policy plays a huge way in, in how porn kind of interacts with our lives. And so we had a really great, important conversation, um, definitely some some hard things that we uh, covered and talked about. So I would just, you know, be mindful of that as you approach this conversation. But I, it, I think it is so important um, to have this conversation and talk about the ways that both porn itself and the policies surrounding it impact our lives. Um, I'm excited for y'all to listen uh, to this episode, so let's jump right in to um, listen to our talk with Raleigh Sims. Everyone and welcome back to the Orthodoxical Podcast. This is your host Kyle Bumgarner, and I'm joined by my friend Raleigh, um, who is another member of that infamous Fellows class, um, the Fellows Initiative. And uh, Raleigh, uh, I wanted to have him on today because, um, in addition to uh, working for the federal government uh, in his spare time, he actually uh, does a lot of work around um, sexual exploitation advocacy. He's worked with a lot of uh, anti-trafficking and anti sex exploitation um, agencies. And he actually, uh, for his master's degree, which is in public policy from the University of Virginia, he wrote his thesis on um, on porn and, and the ways that children are able to access porn in schools and different policy steps that schools can take to kind of prevent that from happening. Um, Raleigh's a super smart dude. Um, he's a really good friend of mine. So even though this is a very serious subject, we might end up laughing a lot. Um, I basically wasn't looking at him as I gave this intro because I knew I was going to start laughing. Um, anyway, uh, Ross, thanks for being on. Yeah, Kyle, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. And we right. certainly so, weren't making eye contact. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so can you, uh, for, for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about your own spiritual theological journey? Um, kind of, you know, where you came from, where you are now and um, sort of the things like the big moments that influence you in your walk with God. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And as Kyle mentioned, like, obviously this is a serious topic and, and I think our conversation will get pretty serious, but I think it's healthy to be able to laugh and actually, um, you know, enjoy the moments uh, that we've been blessed with um, regardless of if they were bad and be able to see kind of how God is, working good out of the bad. Uh, so with that, I, you know, I was born in Florida, um, grew up in a family that was, you know, church attending family. Uh, parents are both in my life, siblings, both in my life. Um, and grew up going to the youth groups, going to summer camps, um, 
church on Sundays, Sunday school on Sundays. Uh, it was pretty, I think, routine for uh, most kids that grow up in Christian families. Um, during high school, I, I was really active in the Christian community. Uh, our, our high school was an Episcopal school and they give out things like the Christian Athlete Award and I would get those kind of awards. <laughs> I was dubbed parent approved as my, uh, <laughs> my senior superlative. <laughs> uh, so I, it was just a little bit about me, but um, shortly after high school, um, I had some events go, to, go down during high school that really uh, changed kind of my view of faith. Um, again, I had a really close family who was willing to guide me in a lot of like Christian principles. Um, but there were um, some instances that I didn't discuss with them about and really kind of like buried deep and deep uh, that I didn't talk with anybody about, anybody about for a while. Um, and those uh, started to form a lot of um, shame in my faith. Uh, particularly, uh, one of the first instances was when I was in uh, eighth grade. Um, I went to a camp called Canacuck, uh, where we, I, was, I was there for four years, really involved in the Christian sports camp. Uh, my family was really, really close with a man named Pete Newman, um, who was the head of K-Country. Um, I'd been there for quite a few years and was really involved in um, like the lives of the, of particularly the boys at camp. Um, he would call me every year, wish me happy birthday. Um, when I was there, he was like kind of that first strong male spiritual leader that I had encountered that wasn't my family. Um, I even to the point that I asked him to baptize me um, when I was at camp. Uh, he, it came out a couple of years later that he um, unfortunately had been abusing little boys at that camp. Mm. Um, and Fortunately, I was not one of the victims, um, but the indirect effects of that have been long lasting, particularly uh, in the ways that it has degraded my uh, trust in like Christian leadership and um, frankly, you know, it made me question aspects of, of why God lets certain things happen to people. Yeah. Um, and then of course it led into, it led to a lot of questions about like sexuality and why Pete would be doing something like that sexually broken um, when saying mm -hmm. he's going to be doing other, like living in different ways of life. Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately after that came out, I didn't really process that with family or friends. I, I kind of buried that deep and that was beginning of eighth grade. Um, and then later that year, I attended a, another summer camp um, with my youth group and Unfortunately, at that camp, I uh, was abused by a group of older guys. Um, you know, I think to them, it was more of a hazing kind of scenario. Uh, but to me, it most certainly felt like sexual abuse. Um, and I was in eighth grade. So it's like, I wasn't a little kid. I was, I was pretty big. I mean, I played varsity basketball in eighth grade. Um, you know, there were, it was an event that really like shocked me. It made me feel extremely weak, um, angry, sad, confused. Um, again, it was tied to my faith because it occurred at a Christian camp um, on the watch of other Christian leadership. And there were older dudes from youth group who were like the perpetrators of this um, 
incident. And that again, led me to start thinking a lot about like why those guys would do something like that. Um, because I knew them, I knew they were like good stand-up dudes. Um, and as I've been doing a lot more research into pornography, I've been learning that since the inception of like online pornography, um, the incidence of minor on minor sexual abuse have increased dramatically. Mm. Uh, and that's a direct result of the fact that, um, you know, folks are watching pornography, kids are watching pornography, um, and then trying to play out what they're seeing on the screen yeah. um, as a way of like, I think sexual experimentation. Yeah. Um, and it's leading to a lot of harmful, a lot of harmful incidents that you're seeing, I think coming out with like the Me Too movement um, or like, you know, stories like mine um, that are sad. But um, I will say a couple of years after all of this stuff happened, um, you know, uh, I had a, had multiple renewing relationships and friendships with Christian leadership um, that really reformed my faith. Um, you know, I know the fellows program gets a huge plug on this podcast all the time. Um, yeah, baby. But during that year, I was, uh, you know, in essence, forced to like put my story together and tell it to myself and then be able to express it to others. Uh, and that created an immense amount of healing um, that then kind of like, propelled me into this world of really being interested in um, like pornography and the harms that it has on society, uh, the ways it's playing out in many of my friends' lives, the ways it's playing out, has played out in my life, um, the way it's playing out on like a public scale. Um, and so my, my interests with kind of public policy and the very clear ramifications that pornography and sexual exploitation are having on our society uh, interact often on this topic. And so it's been, it's been cool to be involved in some of that uh, with some of the organizations that Kyle mentioned earlier. Um, and so God's been working, God is good uh, all the time. <laughs> Amen, bro. Thank you. Just, um, you know, thank you for being candid and you know, being willing to be vulnerable. Um, obviously that's not, it's not easy stuff to share and it's not, um, uh, just, you know, easy to wrap up with a bow and kind of present as like this, you know, oh, you know, very linear journey of like, yeah, we figured, we figured this out and how it's going. Um, hmm. obviously there are still, you know, ramifications for that, but I appreciate you being, open about it and just like i don't know you we were talking about it offline um before we started but i think your story is just so um i think sadly is just so ubiquitous um and then i think even just talking about porn is like particularly for men in church it, it's it's kind of a stereotype but it's just like there is something i mean it's it's been a part of my story it's it's still you know, something that I struggle with. It's something that you struggle, you know, have struggled with and, and worked through and part of your own journey. Um, and I yeah. think just like the way that it is so widespread and so ubiquitous means that it's something that it's worth paying attention to. Um, and so the, the work that you're doing to kind of learn more and, and research more, I think is so important. Um, so you, you kind of already answered my, my next question about what sort of led you into researching more about this topic. Um, but I, I'm curious to know, like, what are um, 
you know, as you've done a lot of research kind of on like the policies um, and, and laws sort of around uh, the porn industry, quote unquote, um, what, um, what have been some of your findings, maybe even ones that have surprised you um, as you've worked with these different agencies and, and done some of your research and writing? Yeah, I think there's probably three, like three buckets that I would, that I think that have frankly just surprised me. I mean, honestly, all of it surprised me because the breadth and magnitude of the industry is shocking. Um, and it's like bigger not, than, isn't it bigger than all major sports leagues combined or something like that? Um, I'm not sure. I haven't, you know, I mean, the answer is honestly, probably yes. I, uh, there's so much information about the size of the industry that it's hard for me to, like, I'm sure there are like, you know, these kind of metaphorical comparisons you can draw between the two, like, you know, like porn industry and another sector. That's not one I've like thought about through that framework, mm -hmm. but an example would be, you know, there's an estimation that the porn industry makes about $97 billion a year. Netflix makes like 11.7 to put it into oh perspective. My um, you know, that's stark, <laughs> uh, pretty alarming. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'll run through a couple other things that just have always like stuck with me. Um, but I think the first, first main like surprising piece of information has to do with like kids, just like statistics about children and pornography. Um, you know, as you mentioned that worked on my thesis on this like, kind of topic. And I mean, I only spent a year on it. I know there's even more that you can learn. Uh, but like the first part being that like kids are in essence targeted like by the pornography industry was one mm -hmm. thing that I hadn't considered. Um, and the, the, the plan there is that, you know, if the earlier you can get kids to see some sort of obscene material, they know they shouldn't necessarily be seeing it. And so it's kind of a like rebellious act that they can hide from their their family or whatnot. Um, and so mm -hmm. porn industries will often create their websites with like a, a slight misspelling so that when kids are like searching, you know, like whitehouse.com used to be a porn site <laughs> uh, and kids would go there and stumble upon pornography. Um, the actual website is like whitehouse.gov, but kids mm -hmm. don't know that. Um, or there will be other websites that'll have like one letter misspelled that'll you know, hopefully get a kid to accidentally, you know, misspell a word. And then they end up at this like random pornography site. And so mm, wow. like, yes. I know, isn't that just like <laughs> sick <laughs> anyways. Uh, so like the average age a kid first is exposed accidentally to porn is 10, um, mm. which was the one like statistic that really stuck out to me. Um, as just sad. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, I was in second grade walking on my, my teacher had invited my family to a picnic with her and her husband and her husband had like a Playboy magazine on his boat. Mm. Um, and that's the first time I saw it. Um, and that wasn't even like internet pornography. Right, yeah. Um, Cause that was probably, I mean, that's a whole different subject of like, I mean, you and I kind of grew up before smartphones were really a thing. Yes. But now like if you're, if you're, it's weird. I remember thinking to myself one time that like, I was like, oh, like, you know, if I have kids, like, I'm, ne I'm not going to get them smartphones until they're, you know, like in later high school, which is when I got my smartphone. But I'm like, there, yeah. there are kids now where it's like, you kind of have to have one. I'm like, 
11 years old with a smartphone and like all of that access to the internet is just uh, it scared me. It is scary. I mean, yeah, it's because yeah. there's not there's not a whole lot of guidance. And that was the other thing, particularly in my like uh, project that I worked on in grad school. There was a piece that was talking about the importance of like parents being involved. Um, like, there's a stat that 12% of parents know that their kids are watching pornography. Mm. Like that shows a clear indication that like there's no longer a conversation being had between parents and their kids about like what pornography actually like is doing or how kids should be making sense of it. Mm-hmm. And so like they're in essence acquiescing their ability to like teach their kids about sex and allowing like the porn industry to be the ones that are teaching their kids how to do it, like how to understand yeah. sex. It's um, such a tough, I, I imagine it's such a tough balance too, if you're a parent, because I think on the one hand, it's like so much of that, like silence is to like not stoke any sort of like curiosity. You know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah. you're like, I don't want to give them any, I, if they weren't thinking about it, like, I don't want to like be like, Hey, by the way, there's this thing called porn. It's really bad. Don't do it kind of thing. Or like, don't look at it. But at the same time, kind of to your point that like, if you, if you don't talk about it, it's just like, it's everywhere now even from like a pop cultural point where it's just like, you know, I'm sure characters like discuss it on TV shows and, and then, you know, kids are going to look it up and figure it out. And so like the, yeah, the having discussions with your parents, I think is, it's super awkward, but like absolutely crucial. Yeah. I mean, I'm just adding it to the list of things that make me, well, I would like to have children. It's like adding it to the list of things that just make me, terrified for the prospect of having children because <laughs> yeah. it's like Seriously. how do you even begin to parent through that right exactly oh. um but I, I will say just a couple of the other main things that i like came across uh one was like one bucket would be kind of the way that like race is portrayed in in pornography yes. oh my goodness please talk about this more yeah it's it's shocking man i don't really i know you and i have talked about this like recently uh, but the, like, I don't understand why, like, the pornography industry has a pass on things yes. like cancel culture mm-hmm. um, in yep. the midst of all the things that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you will have, like, for example, like, like, Pornhub is the most widely used pornography website. They, every year, release what's called, like, the Pornhub Insights, and that is a, like, a review of their data, and they do all this data analysis of their user on their users um last year the or 2019 the five of the eight most searched topics were about asian women whether it be Mm. like korean japanese hentai Mm. um i can't remember i think chinese was another one um oddly enough one of those one of the top eight search terms was also massage Um, yeah you know which i think we'll get into the atlanta topic a little bit later but like so people are actively seeking out videos of a particular minority um and in these videos like you're seeing violent abuse um you know there's a recent new york times article uh by nicholas christoff and he's talking about the he exposes the way that like women who have been trafficked are on like pornhub videos Um, and there are a lot of implications that he draws out from that, but I think the important one is to note that like, like Asian women are a part of that and they are like being profited 
the industry is profiting off of them yeah. um, in a way that is certainly demeaning to to women of Asian descent. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I mean, you know, you'll have videos. I think there was a popular one a couple of years ago that like had black women playing the role of African slaves and you had like white male plantation owners. Mm-hmm. Um, this video went like viral. And yet that was never anything that was talked about like in, in publicly or in the media. Like you're talking about like, like Pornhub gets 115 million visits a day. And you, all of those views are seeing videos like this and no one's talking about it. Like, I just don't get why it's not like being blown up in cancel culture. It's blowing my mind. No, I mean, yeah, it well, And I think as you and I have discussed, I think there's a part of me, like a cynical part of me that's like, I think people almost kind of recognize that it's almost like a war of attrition where if they mm-hmm. speak out about the things that are taking place on websites like that, that then their own sort of, that it's going to like shine the light back on like the ways that they've contributed to it and the ways that they're complicit in the things that happen there. Um, And so I think that's why a lot of, I think, cause I think, you know, I think what you and I are getting at, right. Is that there are people that are like hardcore, what we would call on the like progressive spectrum that say like, you know, that are constantly speaking out about racism and and the ways that race has informed our society, which is as well they should. Um, but then for whatever, and and in a lot of ways also are talking about like more liberative uh, sexual ethics and and kind of like what you can and, and should be um, aspiring to in, in your, with your sexuality and your sex life. Um, mm. And, but at the same time, uh, it's, I think it's odd to people like us where it's like, okay, so like you're talking about these things, but then, I mean, this is, this is awful. Like, I mean, th- I mean, it's essentially you're consuming a historical, like a historically accurate depiction of the raping of slaves for, for your own, not just entertainment, but also for your own like sexual satisfaction. Hmm. And, and no, and people are just kind of like, you know, gonna keep moving on. Like that's not a big deal. Or or say like, well, that's just part of, you know, part of sexual liberation is, you know, you just get to do what you want kind of thing, which, you know, obviously is is nuts. Um yeah. But, and like to the point with kids, like they're they're seeing this stuff. So right. we're trying Yo, to make, exactly like, you know, cultural changes on how to like reframe how we, particularly as Americans, view race. Like this seems like an area where we could at least like have a pretty quick win of not letting like racial stereotypes and racism be perpetuated in the next generation who are very obviously watching these videos. I mean, that's you're you're right on the money. Like it just it's crazy that we're we're so like hardcore about like education and changing and like having anti-racism training. But like, how does that? Like when you when you look at an area and you know we'll we'll just get into it. it. It a big part of the Atlanta shooting recently was blamed on that that this guy had like this very sexualized view of Asian of Asian American women. Um, yeah. And and so it's like if you believe that this man sort of developed these like you know 
hit these sexual appetites, he developed them from somewhere. Right. Um, and more than likely, it was probably from watching a lots of porn on the internet. And so if, you're, if your thought process is, okay, like we need to stop um, people who could potentially be violent from like being um, socialized into this sort of mindset, then why, why are we not going after these, these companies or these, these institutions that are perpetuating this thing? Yeah. For real. I mean, that's, such that's a, a question, man. It's such an interesting, yeah. Um, well, and particularly when you like, I mean, again, they're going to nerd out on some of like the research side of things, but mm -hmm. like there are multiple studies and multiple like literary reviews, which are in essence like reviews of like mini studies, studies and they kind still. of like, you know, synthesize them into one, mm -hmm. like draw clear lines between like an association of viewing pornography and increased rates of violence, both like abuse violence and verbal, verbal abuse against women, particularly. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, you're seeing this guy as the, like the Atlanta shooter, who it's important to note was a baptized member of the Southern Baptist Church. So I would imagine there's some failure to be like addressed on the church Christian side of things. Absolutely. Um, but then like he was an active consumer of, of this pornography that he said was his like claim for committing like a violent act. And while there may be other indicators to determine like why he did this, I mean, you can't negate at least the things he said, um, because there is like science backing it up too, which, yeah. you know, hasn't really been talked about either. So. You know, going back to the, the Christoph article for a second, what I think was interesting was that, um, and I think you can speak to this, that that article really kind of opened weirdly again, but like, essentially, it's been no secret that like conservative Christian circles have been very anti-porn for a long time. Um, but I think what they kept missing, and I think what the Christoph article really um, kind of highlighted was that uh, essentially like conservative Christians were kind of like porn is bad because it's harming like the people that are that are watching it and you know are doing stuff like that but the Christoph article focused on no it's harming the people that are caught up in it like those like obviously like it's having these negative sociological effects but the victims are the people that are being sexually trafficked and the and the people that are being harmed in that regard and so there's a part of me that wonders if like it's a if maybe the focus needs to be on like, okay, like where, like, yes, these, you know, these users and consumers have been like swept up into this, but like, are they the main victims that we need to be focusing on here is, is something that I've kind of wondered about. Yeah, I think, I mean, that is, that was, that was a unique perspective, which is why there was a lot of traction and still kind of is like on this topic, both in the policy world, but also like kind of in the uh, I mean, cultural commentary world. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the implications that Christoph draws like during his article are the ones that I think really shocked people, like the ways in which uh, people were able to profit off of these trafficked, trafficked victims. 
um, without their consent, even when they multiple times would message like the organizations like Pornhub saying like, I was trafficked, I don't want this video on your website. And they were like ignored, ignored, ignored as the industry continued to profit off of these women um, was one that like moved the conversation from morality where like there was little public policy traction in the world of pornography to one that was like, hey, we have like constituents who are being harmed. Um, we have voters who are being harmed and you enter into a realm of like um, both like, well, the harming of like Americans, the harming of a, a public health crisis, which are, are two avenues that do require like government involvement. <laughs> um, and so that's why you started to see some more like actual policy discussions happening after the, an article like Christoph's than as opposed to like the 20, 30 previous years um, where you had like snippets of legislation and snippets of like Supreme Court cases on like freedom of speech. Um, but this one really flips, flips the switch as far as like something beyond just a moral conversation. There's like objectively horrible things happening on these websites. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously your background is in, is in public policy and, you know, your, your expertise is in policy analysis. Um, so clearly that is framing um, the way that you approach this conversation, but what, because <laughs> you're a nerd, um, but why, why do you think it's important for, um, for us to approach this from a policy perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple reasons. I think the kind of what I was just saying, like there's like a lot of organizations are now framing this and justifiably so as a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are numerous studies out that show associations between viewing pornography and increased rates of depression, increased rates of anxiety, increased rates of objectification of women and men, increased rates of um, violence against others, particularly domestic abuse or minor on minor abuse. I mean, and there are, there are several other like implications from studies that have been done on this topic. Uh, and so there is a consensus in like the anti-pornography realm that it is a public health crisis. And when things are labeled as such, they are, they require government involvement the same way that like COVID is not being handled necessarily by like the private sector. It's being handled by the government who has like contracted out research organizations to do like the vaccine research. Um, and then like the government buys from them. Um, but they're, so, they're also making like mandates and, and passing like public health measures. Yes, like that. Exactly. That like are required for the safety of their people. Right. Um, you know, the other thing is, I didn't even talk about this earlier, but there's like the amount of data that these organizations, like porn, porn organizations have on their users is shocking. Like I don't, I'm not gonna get into the like kilobyte, peta, terabyte amount because I don't really understand all of that. But as a frame of like thinking about it, the, like in the year 2018 alone, like Pornhub, the largest porn company had an equivalent of 283 photos of every person on earth in terms of data. That like, is insane. I don't, 
like people don't even have that many pictures of themselves on Facebook, right? Like they're, it's shocking and it, and it's growing like exponentially. It's not just like, you know, doubling every year. It's like the users are growing the speed with which videos can be uploaded to these, like, or these websites is concerning. Wait, wait, wait. how um, is that? Hold on. I'm trying to think of how is that even possible? Like, so how, not, how do they I'm get saying, sorry, I'm not saying like they have 283 photos of like you, Kyle Bumgarner. It's like, they have the equivalent of what would be 283 photos of every person on earth. Of every, okay. Oh, um, goodness. And what's, what's also concerning is that like their websites are turning into forms of like social media where your like, groups are being formed and people are having conversations and, you know, there's no regulation on these kind of things. Um, and that's, you know, you're having this conversation play out in the like Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, kind of big tech world. Um, and it seems like organizations like Pornhub uh, should be involved in that conversation as they have just as much data on people as, as these other organizations do that are like yeah. more popular to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, it's concerning, you know, like the number of visits to Pornhub, like four times the number of people that visit YouTube visit Pornhub during a year. Like, that Nuts. I'm just trying, and I know I could just keep spitting stats, but it, it's just like the the magnitude of their industry is shocking, and it's one that because it's directly affecting like particularly Americans, um, it does require like government involvement um, through legislation or law. Yeah, totally. I have another question, but I was thinking of actually a separate question as you were as you were talking about it, you know, one of the things that uh, has become big recently is OnlyFans. And I think a lot of the reasons people like OnlyFans or that they talk about it is, and I think you and I have like, have had conversations or have been privy to conversations where people say that the biggest issue with Pornhub is that it quote unquote, doesn't pay its creators, um, that essentially like it, it's profiting, um, off of like other people's labor, quote unquote. Yeah. Whereas OnlyFans, I think like the the draw to that for a lot of people was that it, it allowed them to essentially like directly make money off of the 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 sexual the porn that they yeah. produce. Um, how where does that fit into like the the scheme of like of of uh, policy and and the porn industry and and things like that. Yeah, I, hmm, I hadn't thought about that. I would say, you know, one benef benefit to a website, website like that is that uh, the viewers have to opt in to be able to access like somebody's profile where they're posting their own videos. Right, yeah. Um, so one, it allows like the porn actors, stars, whatever term you'd like to use um, to like most certainly consent to their video being posted online, which mm -hmm. is one of the big issues with Pornhub is that a lot of the people in the videos don't have a say if the video is posted on their website or not. Right. Um, secondly, uh, as I mentioned, uh, people are able to opt into the site, which means they don't have to opt out. Like it is the baseline is that we all don't have access to fans only. You have to like request access, which 
it seems like a small step, but it's a, a large step in the kind of pornography conversation because um, it requires people to make the action as opposed to the action just being the status quo. Or, or like it's almost the, the threshold of like getting into it. It's just a lot, like even it's like you said, it seems like it, it's not much, but it, even that is just so much higher than like, you know, I'm a 12 year old kid and I like go to whitehouse.com and all this, you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. just, there's a lot more, there's, there's more steps to getting into something like that than there is with, with uh, a porn hub or something like that. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's, you're not going to accidentally, you can't accidentally stumble upon it. Like you can accidentally go to the website, but you don't have access to like the private videos that people are posting. Right. Um, which I think is like a benefit. You know, you'll look at a place like the United Kingdom where they, it was like 2016 or 2015, they like passed a law that required all of their internet service providers to start their members at the status quo of uh, having to opt in to receive like late night videos or be able to access like pornography websites as opposed mm -hmm. to already having access to those things and requiring like parents or kids to opt out of it. Um, mm -hmm. Mixed results on like how that's been going for them. Yeah. Um, but I think, a, you know, ironically, <laughs> my fans might solve fans only, only fans. might solve that uh what is it called again i always forget o only fans only fans uh might resolve that issue yeah um, which is kind of comical to me <laughs> then a separate private pornography site might resolve the pornography issue well and and so that begs the follow-up question for me is like obviously having you know making things more making sure that like, you know, they're, they're giving people quote unquote agency to kind of control their content and then giving people agency to, to opt out of or opt into uh, the kind of content that they're getting uh, is a step in the right direction. But I'm, there's still a part of me that's like, even, even if like, you're, you're like, oh, like I'm willfully choosing to opt into this, it still doesn't feel like we're quite like, it, even if the, even if the content itself is harder to access, like the content itself is is a huge part of the issue. Like, it's still hard. yeah, going yeah, going back to our previous conversation, like just because somebody decides to record themselves dressed up as a slave and have you know somebody else you know rape them for entertainment, that doesn't make it any less bad because you decided to like opt in and pay for it. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think about it, you know, like I played basketball in college and I think about it in the terms of like, well, if I pass the ball to the other team, like that's not going to be good, regardless of if I like decide that it's good in that moment, because my coach will tell me like, hey, that's <laughs> like you're, it is a poor choice <laughs> regardless. And I will be benched because I did so as opposed to like me deciding, oh, I just want to like give the ball to the other team today, see how they do today. Like it's, it's a... Uh, we, we can't always determine like what is good for ourselves. I think yeah. as Christians, particularly, we know that. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we need Jesus. <laughs> Both to know that I don't pass the ball to the other team and to not watch pornography. <laughs> yes. Um, so in, in your estimation, 
and we've, we've kind of hit on a few of these things already, but what are some things or what are some ways that the policies around porn kind of influence our, our lives, um, both in ways that maybe we, we kind of understand and maybe in ways that we don't even fully grasp quite yet? Hmm. Do you mind explaining that one a little more? Yeah. So what are you thinking about? I think just, I'm wondering how, I think it's just, it, I mean, I'll, and I'll say that like, this is something for me too, that like, it's just something that I don't really think about like, okay, there's this, I, it's like, I know that like there's the porn industry and it's this big nebulous thing that's out there, but like, I don't even think about like what, how that affects, um, kind of the ways that like our, our society um, interacts with the different dimensions of it and, and, you know, how that influences our lives and stuff like that. Um, I guess, you know, a way, a way that I've been thinking about it is kind of like, so there, I was watching a documentary um, in grad school one time, our, one of our professors showed it to us and it was essentially, um, it's called killing the, or killing us softly. Um, and it's a, it's this woman who essentially she um, analyzes like like 50 or 60 years worth of advertisements. Um, and she's basically trying to point out that like the ad industry for years and even still to this day relies upon like the sexual exploitation of women um, just in the in the imagery that it that it shows and then like the ways that it objectifies women and then the ways that it like sexualizes and, and puts women in these um, these just very like very obviously promiscuous roles um, in their ads that um, it's just like you know like you wouldn't think anything about it if though if you're just constantly seeing ads about these things but watching that video and realizing like, oh, like this was like an intentional move. Um, and it's a move that I think people are now kind of aware, right? Like we, I think Americans, like we, we're, we've become more and more because we have more access to information. We know, okay, I know when someone's trying to sell me something, but I think we are less aware than we would, than we actually are when it comes to things that are just so everywhere they're just so ubiquitous that we don't even realize how they're affecting us when it's like like i can i can be like oh yeah like clearly you know hardy's is trying to get me to buy their food by having like models eat a cheeseburger but it's like when i see that and then like a cologne ad and then mm. a car ad and then a a clothing ad and then all of these things that are like sub um subconsciously relying on the activation of like my like sexual triggers essentially then it's like yeah. my my tolerance for like being able to like critically examine each ad gets lower and the ad agencies are counting on that um and so i guess like it's my, my so my question is like how does that work with porn and like the the um the policies around like what we are um what we are able to like very easily have access to, like how does that influence our lives in, in ways that we maybe aren't always necessarily aware of? Yeah, uh, it's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think it's important to like separate the kind of 
I guess, objectification or, uh, yeah, I'll use the word objectification of like people for marketing purposes or, um, you know, music videos or all these things where, um, I don't, I don't think stuff like that is necessarily going to require like government intervention. Um, but the question I, I ask when I see these things, I'm like, I, very similar scenarios are being like called out on social media or by like uh, kind of the cancel culture of the way people are acting. Um, people have known for a long time that like we objectify specifically women in advertisements to sell things to like dudes and we sexualize women to do so in advertisements like the Hardy's commercial you're talking about or I mean Hooters or any other you know any other like, right, like yeah company that like you know objectifies the female body to like as a sales pitch mm -hmm. um, what's concerning to me is that it's not a space where the government should be intervening I think that'd be government overreach but mm -hmm. there is not enough concern publicly for there to be an actual change mm -hmm. um you know like we fortunately are at a time where there is enough public outcry that people are demanding a change for things like the way that we view race in our country um in the same way i think we have known that both like advertisement agencies as well as like pornography companies profit off of particularly women and particularly like sexualizing them. So and you would make a distinction between something that's like, and obviously there's gray areas here, right? But you would make a distinction between something that's just more using somebody's sexuality as a marketing tool versus like, no, this is actually pornographic. Yes, mostly because for two reasons. One, um, there's a, a Supreme Court case that defined what pornography like kind of what what is considered obscene content um and that's so, the that's well oh shoot i i always know his i always I'll know it when name. i see it yes i was gonna say i know it's I, I can't define pornography but i know it when i see it yeah and they go through and they like you know in the supreme court case they do lay out like what obscenity law includes and like how they define pornography mm -hmm. um in, in some in some ways, but I mean, they knew like the internet was coming and there was a lot of like ambiguity. Uh, but yes, I do differentiate between the two because uh, one is like specifically sexual, like sexual acts are happening. And then the other one is a, uh, like we're not seeing like two people having sex over a Hardee's burger. We're just seeing mm, like a, yeah. a beautiful woman being the cause to try to like get guys to buy something mm -hmm. because they're just selling her beauty. Right. Um, does that distinction make sense? That's how I do it in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think there are, I think, like you said, I, I, I think that there are, um, it's tough because it's like at a certain point, it's like, okay, like, well, you know, based on, and you know, like we're talking about, we've been talking a lot about, you know, how this has affected like men and how like we're, and we're two men, but like, you know, it's the same thing with women that like, you know, a lot of like ads are now like starting to prey on like women's sexuality and like what, what that does. Um, but I think, um, 
I think it, I think it makes sense. It's like it's not a, a sexually quote unquote explicit ad per se, but I think it I think like I said earlier, I think it gets into a gray area where it's like, I mean, if a dude is like out front wearing buttless chaps in like some like commercial for something, it's like it may not necessarily be porn, quote unquote. Right. But it's clearly trying to evoke a sexual image <laughs> for, um, for like the the people that are watching, probably the women that are watching. Yeah, no, you're right. I will. This just popped in my mind, but uh, I think I I started differentiating between kind of these two categories that we're talking about uh, because the one of the organizations I worked with, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Mm-hmm. They have this awesome resource. It's called the Dirty Dozen List. And it they're an advocacy organization, and this is one of their advocacy tools. But it calls out every year 12 organizations that are perpetuating both the objectification of like men and women, like through these like companies, but also uh, calls out ways that they are allowing um well, ways that they are allowing like the sex exploitation industry to thrive. Um so it's a good resource because it, it helps me understand like what large corporations are doing um, that maybe folks that don't follow this topic closely like would maybe miss. Um, so maybe we can drop that in your show notes or something. Um, I can yeah. send you a link because it's a good it's a good one. Definitely can do. Um, in in your research, what what are some policy steps that, you know, we talked about one earlier of just like the opting in, opting out, but what are some other policy steps that um, are being explored to kind of regulate or, or, or curb some of the um, just easy access to, to this kinds of content? Yeah, uh, there are a couple, but I think the main point I wanna make is that there aren't many, mm. uh, which is concerning. Uh, where you come in yeah yeah it's true uh and it's something uh, you know i like the critical thinking aspect of it but there are it's it's sad honestly that there there's not a whole lot of conversation happening about it um i will say points of hope uh the canadian parliament recently held a hearing against uh, mind geek which is the company that owns like the five largest, well, MindGeek is a monopoly. They own like the five largest pornography websites or companies. They own the studios, they own the actors, um, they own the website domains, they own it, they own every part of the industry. Um, and they uh, were called to a hearing in Canada because they're based out of Canada. Um, and that brought a lot of, lot of information to light. Uh, and we're actually, the U.S. Uh, Congress is hosting a hearing on April 8th um, that it's virtual. So, you know, whenever this podcast is published, like it'll probably be recorded and available publicly online. Um, but I would, you know, encourage folks to go watch because it'll, it sheds some light on like how policymakers are actually thinking about this topic. Um, because it's the first time that we've actually talked to the, like, owners of this company publicly um and that's a big deal outside of that i mean there's 
a couple bills that have been passed on the state side of things that are interesting um, in like the anti-pornography world, like Utah just passed a bill that required um, phones when they're given to somebody. Uh, similar to this kind of opt-in, opt-out uh, policy that I was talking about earlier, they give somebody a phone and the uh, default setting is that they have, that the filters are in place on the phone, you know, like the parental advisory filters or whatnot. And so parents will have to turn those off if they want them to be turned off for their kids or not, or adults when they get their phone, will have to turn that off. Um, and it's, it's really easy. It's like a button and you have, you have a pin and then you enter, enter the pin um, and then you, you know, can access anything you want to be able to access. But legislation like that has been helpful uh, because again, it's just like that extra step of precaution for like the accidental tripping up of somebody stumbling into, you know, watching pornography and particularly kids. Um, because at least for me, like, you know, obviously like my end goal would be to like ban the entire pornography industry because of its harms, both like from a health perspective and a moral perspective and uh, from a Christian perspective. Uh, but I think like the most attainable victory right now would be to just ensure like protecting kids. Um, and so this is one way that I think we could do that. Yeah, those, I mean, those sound at least at the minimum, they sound like steps in the right direction, um, which mm -hmm. I think, how do they, I mean, just curious, how do they enforce, like, obviously these are private cell phone companies that are giving these things out. How do they enforce a measure like that where it's like, hey, look, you have to. Yeah, that's so, it's in essence a nominal legislation right now. Like I don't really know, you know, people could drive over to like across the border of Utah and, you know, get a phone there and then drive back. It's right. not a big deal. Um, yeah. But I think like Utah actually usually leans, they're like one of the kind of the leading states on like anti-pornography legislation. Um, most of that's because they have a very large Mormon population. Uh, but the, there's hope in the fact that they're doing that and it'll hopefully encourage other states to follow as other states have followed Utah's example and other previous like anti-pornography pieces of legislation, um, which is encouraging. We'll take the victories where we can get them. <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, just wrapping kind of things up here um, <clears throat> from a, Oh my gosh, my throat just got super dry. That's really weird. Um, I'm dying of thirst. Um, as a as uh, Christians, what can we what can we be doing to kind of be helpful in these efforts? Because I think <clears throat> you know, kind of, I think like for years, like I was talking about earlier, um, you know, for so often, like Christians have just been banging the anti-porn drum. Um, yeah, and we've more or less kind of come across as like we just don't. You know what? Don't wave that in my face. <laughs> he's got a he's got a water bottle that he's tempting or he's taunting me with. Um, but I think um, I think Christians we often just come across as like we like to be like prohibitive and as you know like we like to basically just like sit you know with with anything right where it's like you know like oh like we don't like pot because it does this, this, and that. And so like, we're just constantly saying no to things. Um, and so what can we do to be helpful and kind of shed light on these things where we're like, no, like we're not just saying this because we hate fun, good things. We're saying this because these things are dangerous and harmful, particularly. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I mean, I know it's going to sound so like Christianese, but I do think the most important step is is praying. Uh, like the, uh, it's conceded to think that we're going to be able to make a change without involving God and without praying that he would mm -hmm. be involved in all yeah. of this in the same way that we need that for racial justice in our country. Yeah. Um, you know, like you and I both follow the organization, the and campaign, one of their main slogans is like prayer and action. And I like am a large proponent of that saying, as I think action is extremely important and required. Um, but I, I do think it is conceded to think that we can't, that we can bring about this kind of change without prayer. So that's the biggest one. Um, but is like other like, you know, action steps, um, aside from prayer, I would say that, um, you know, there is a policy like nexus to this topic, but I think the single most important piece of all this is parents talking to their kids. Yeah. Um, there's a organization um, that they like, their one go, like motto is 10 before 10. It's asking parents to have at least 10 conversations about pornography with their kids before they're 10, because that's like the first age that kids see pornography for the first time. Yeah. And you want your kids to be prepared. You don't want them to feel shame. Uh, you don't want them to like not talk to you about it because that's where it like manifests into a compulsive behavior or an addiction. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, and that's, that's something that like, I wish I'd had more conversations about that growing up. Um, I, I know me and my friends, like that's, that's been like a theme when we talk about this thing is like, why didn't we talk about this with our parents at all? And like, why is there so much shame wrapped up in it? But I well, think parents are like, the real aid to like victory here. And I think, um, I, I totally agree. And I think to me also something that is important for Christians at least is that I think the, I think the church, the, I think the church had conversations about porn, but the conversations just weren't, and I, and I I would say I say I'm saying this because I think it applies to parents as well. It's just like, yeah. and, and I'll say that like I think um, a lot of people's a, a lot of parents' conversations about sex in general is kind of this way where it just is very like baseline like this is this is what sex is don't do it kind of thing or like this is what porn is don't do it or like avoid it rather than kind of like having a more substantive conversation about like, this is, this is what sex is. This is why we think it's important. And this is why these are the things that can like affect it or, or with porn, you know, authors that you and I like, like, like Jay Stringer and, and Michael John Cusick, I think what they do really well is get at the underlying desires and drivers of watching porn, which is like a conversation having that conversation as a teenager would change. It would have changed me. Like I can think of so many things that it would have just yes. been completely different. If someone had been like, this is, this is like the reasons you're going to be drawn to this and the reasons that you're going to like find solace in this. Um, and here's how you kind of like conceptualize it and work through it. Yeah. And they give you like, they give the person like 
the dignity and autonomy to be able to make their own decisions yes which like is the goal right like right especially from the policy side of things like i am anti-government overreach and mm. so like whenever there's a chance for you are from florida after all so <laughs> yes i am from florida <laughs> uh but whenever there's a chance for you know people to be able to make decisions on their own and not right. like that value not being dictated by the government like I believe is a good thing. And so teaching folks how to engage, if they're gonna engage with pornography, being able to do so like with an education of like what it's doing to them, mm -hmm. like that's fine. They're making that choice, I get it. Uh, but like kids don't have the like brain, like their, their brain is not developed enough to a point where they can like make these decisions like clearly. And so uh -huh. I'm glad that there's a place for like parents to be able to talk through it with them and kind of like help guide them and organizations that are doing that as well. Um, and I, I, of course, wish the church was more involved in all of these conversations. As you mentioned, I think they had been briefly and then they, I think they're trying to figure out how to talk about race right now. And I think that a lot of, hopefully with these like more recent nationally renowned leaders that are having like sex scandals come out will lead to more conversations in the church about sexual brokenness um and hopefully people have the courage to like talk up or speak up about like their experience with that yeah absolutely raleigh thank you so much for being on um really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise and your wisdom and your story with us um you know i'm excited for um, the work that you're doing with these organizations. Um, yeah, you're the man. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate you having me on and just your your podcast in general. I know I said it to you earlier, uh, but yeah, I'm really grateful that you're giving voice to um, folks on a variety of topics that, you know, are pertinent. And um, I think you're doing so in a thoughtful way, uh, particularly in a space where I think unfortunately we're seeing a lot of like thoughtless Christians speaking out publicly and loudly. Um, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you next time on the Orthodox School Podcast.